Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. Indeed's new 2022 DNI report has just gone live. It's one of the most comprehensive studies into DNI issues in Australian workplaces. Click the link in this episode's description to get your free copy. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is often full of grey areas, uncertainty, and quite possibly fear. High Potential with Indeed is here to help demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations. Groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Kathy Ngo, diversity, equity, and inclusion change maker and presenter. I've spent over a decade in HR, corporate affairs, and communications, but I'm most passionate about pushing the boundaries relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. According to Indeed's 2022 Diversity and Inclusion Report, two-thirds of working-age Australians say they feel the need to hide part of their identity at work, which is a significant 18% increase since Indeed's 2020 report. When it's so hard for employees to embrace their identity in the workplace, it's no surprise that there are unique challenges and difficulties associated with going one step further and changing your identity. When people undertake a name change or other identity-based change for a myriad of reasons, they can struggle to reintegrate into the workplace as their new selves. Today, we're joined by Danica McCarthy, Before founding her own consulting practice, Danica was an organisational coach and inclusive capability lead at Ernest & Young. Through her current work, Danica provides coaching, facilitation and consulting to organisations on diversity and inclusion and has recently changed her name too. Welcome, Danica, to the show. Thanks, Cathy. Great to be here. So your background is in DNI, but your perspective on identity is a very personal one. If you wouldn't mind, would you start by sharing with us your recent journey of changing your name? So I think like a lot of people, I had quite a journey of introspection during the pandemic, which can look different for different people. But for me, that meant a lot of internal work and healing from some experiences I'd had throughout my life. And where that landed was realizing that my sense of self had kind of grown and developed. And my name was actually meant to be Danica before I was born. My mum actually chose that name for me. And for certain reasons, that 
didn't happen and I ended up being named Sarah. But through a lot of this internal work that I'd done, I felt more and more aligned to that name. And when I first heard it, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I would have been about eight years old and my mum told me that I was meant to be called Danica and I had this really strong resonance with the name. And I thought, that's actually my name though. That's way more my name than Sarah is. But it never actually occurred to me to change it or that's something that I could actually do. So this year, the more that I learned about that name, and it means day star in Slavic mythology, Danica was often portrayed as this warrior goddess and protector. And the more I learned about that, the more I felt like it's so aligned with who I am personally and professionally, and it felt right. So I tried it on for a few weeks with a couple of close friends. And as soon as people started calling me that, I thought that this is right. So I decided to formally make the change. And here we are. That's amazing. You don't really hear often of people changing their names. And I think I really admire that self-reflection over the past couple of years. So how has that self-exploration really challenged you professionally and also personally as well? It's definitely challenged me in a lot of ways. It's challenged me personally, but I think more than anything professionally, it's actually supported and helped the work that I do. So a lot of people that work in the diversity and inclusion space have their own lived experience of at least one diverse identity for the most part, sometimes more than that. So the more that I went through this work of renegotiating what I'd experienced and realigning that with who I was and shifting some of these more negative experiences into a perspective of strength, I've been able to bring that more strongly into my own work and the work that I do with not only people with diverse identities, but also workplaces and leaders supporting those people. So personally, it's felt like this really well-aligned, integrated, strong, just right decision, I guess. Professionally, it's been all of those things, but it's also been a little bit more challenging because I have a really strong brand associated with my previous name, Sarah. And it's worth pausing here to mention that I'm not overly uncomfortable with my old name, but some people are, which I'll come to shortly. So it's just worth noting, proceed with caution if you know someone who's changed their name, but I'll talk about that more later. So professionally, it's involved changing my business name, changing my ABN, a whole host of different documents and resources. And that's been a lot of work and a lot of resources, both financial and time and energy. But, you know, aside from it being a really beautiful, positive process for the most part, there's also been that fear right? That uncertainty. So how will people receive this? Am I being a burden? I don't want to make anyone's life difficult. You know, it's an extra stressor for someone to use a different name, particularly people that I've known for years. So there was always that fear of what if it makes people uncomfortable or it makes it difficult for them. And look, that can be the case for anyone who goes through any sort of change. You negotiate how much is this worth to me and are the pros outweighing the cons essentially. So when I heard about you changing your name, I thought, wow, that's amazing. It's a great way to own your identity. But I can imagine some people might feel like, oh, i got to remember what her name is again or their name is again. Did you ever feel that kind of burden almost? Do you know what? If anyone's felt that way, they haven't shared it, which I'm <laughs> grateful for. But I've certainly experienced responses in the many years of work that I've done in workplaces where people perhaps don't understand why someone's making the change or they're so much more focused on the relatively small personal cost to them to be able to shift their language. So it's certainly not happened to me, but I also acknowledge that that comes with quite degree of privilege. So this process has given me an interesting insight into other people who've had 
experiences of changing their name for different reasons. So for example, trans and gender diverse people who might change their name or pronouns and also culturally diverse people who have either chosen to or had to anglicise their name and then perhaps chosen to go back to their original name and embrace that. So I certainly acknowledge that as a white woman and someone who is cisgender, my experience is not the same as that, but I do acknowledge that for people who undergo changes in their identity or name for different reasons, they don't always receive the same positive response that I have. But if I can share actually a couple of really beautiful responses that I got that I just didn't expect at all, When I started to share this change on social media and LinkedIn and from a work perspective, I don't know what I expected, but I certainly didn't expect the positive response that I've had. And there's three in particular that I want to call out. So my local cafe and my local physio responded within seconds of me sharing this on social media. And not only did they acknowledge the change, but they also celebrated it. And that's something that I didn't expect. So there's acceptance and then there's inclusion, but then there's celebration. And those are just such different levels of experience for someone on the receiving end. So for example, my physio, who I've worked with for many years, messaged me and said, hey, Danica, awesome name. Love that for you. Just want to let you know I've updated all your files. I'm assuming you'll change your email address as well. So let me know when you've done that and I'll make sure it's all up to date for you. And I just thought, wow, that's just taken the burden off my shoulders to have to do that. But they've also celebrated it and seen me as me. And so many people have said it just fits in the name works. So it's been overwhelmingly beautiful, but I do want to acknowledge it's not everyone's experience. I love that story because they've just been so embracing, so proactive, and that gives you this peace of mind and to not have to explain as well. Because I can imagine like having to explain the reasons why and the context and everything can be super exhausting, right? And there has been an element of that. There's been an element of how much do I share why I'm doing this? And I've definitely felt probably an internal need to have to justify and explain it in a way that makes sense to others. And as I've had these conversations, I've realised I actually don't have to give all of that context necessarily and I don't have to justify it because it's my choice. But once again, if we come back to other people's experience of what that's like, particularly in the workplace as someone who is trans or gender diverse or perhaps culturally diverse, if someone doesn't understand why that change is occurring, they may be less likely to support it. So that kind of puts a lot of the burden and that weight on the person going through the change to not only have to embrace the change, manage the fear of the response, but also to educate people at the same time. So I guess that's where I've really channeled a lot of this work into realisations into my professional work as well, to be able to support workplaces in navigating and negotiating those changes, but also being able to create a safe space that enables people to go through those changes, whether that's an identity shift or whether that's embracing an identity I think that's a really important point as well, that we often think when someone undergoes what we perceive to be a change in the workplace, it can actually be something that they've embraced or acknowledged for many years, but haven't felt safe enough to bring that to work. Or perhaps just not consciously aware that something within them is not actually who they are. So giving them almost permission to question their own identity and then workshop that. So I think that's beautiful. What sort of changes in identity are most prevalent in the workplace? So you mentioned earlier transgender, people anglicising their names just to assimilate and fit in. Have you come across any other identity changes in the workplace? 
It's worth also noting that this isn't just relevant to those DNI pillars that we often think of. So we often think, okay, does this relate to people of diverse genders or people with disabilities or culturally diverse people or LGBTQ people or First Nations people? But when we're talking about embracing changes in someone's life, this is relevant to every single person who is made up of a complex tapestry of elements, some of which they feel safe enough to share at work with colleagues and some they don't. And this might include caring responsibilities, for example. So someone might have a partner at home who's experiencing a mental health challenge. Perhaps they have a child with a disability or maybe an autistic child, or maybe they're experiencing mental health challenges themselves. Maybe they're experiencing an addiction issue that they are struggling with, but still managing to show up at work every day. You know, or it might be something as simple and societally accepted as someone who gets married and elects to take the name of their spouse. So there's a lot of different examples of where someone might go through something that's a seemingly simple change in a societally accepted and celebrated change, or it might be something a little bit more complex and difficult. It might even be the breakdown of a relationship, for example. So anything that impacts the wholeness of who someone is, is inevitably going to impact how they show up at work. And it's also worth noting that not everyone wishes to share that at work or needs to, but for those that it affects at work, it's worth considering how can a workplace and particularly leaders create a space to navigate that shift to ensure that someone can bring their whole self to work and the team and workplace and society can essentially benefit from that as well. That's a really good point because Particularly with the pandemic, there's just so much more caring responsibilities. So I've got a couple of friends who their parents haven't been able to go back overseas because of the borders closing. And actually recently I caught up with a close friend at a wedding and I was asking, oh, how's your brother and everything? She's like, yeah, he's got five kids now. And I'm like, how did that happen? Five kids within like two years. So he got remarried and now he's got two kids of his own and three stepchildren. I'm like, wow. But then that also puts a lot of pressure on him and his work. He couldn't be more happier, but it just means a lot more responsibility and also some kind of workplace adjustments. So I want to talk about psychological safety and well-being a little bit more because that's really important, I guess, when someone is going through either an identity change or about to, et cetera. Can you share a little bit more about that and your experiences? Look, this is such an exceptionally important area and you've just touched on why. So through the pandemic, so many people went through a complete life renegotiation in a lot of ways, and that's inevitably impacted our workplaces. And psychological safety has become so much more important in that time. And admittedly, last year, the majority of the work that I did with clients was around how to create psychological safety for their teams, particularly in an environment that they have no or very little control over. I'll stop to define psychological safety for a second because I think that's important. It's a word we hear a lot. Psychological safety is the collective belief that someone can take a risk and not be punished for it or not face ramifications. Now, it's important here to note the collective as well because any term or any experience, it can be weaponized. Psychological safety isn't just someone's comfort to express whatever it is they believe and not have to face ramifications. That's not what it's about. But it's a collective experience, so a team-based experience. And once again, this applies to 
everyone. How can people show up and be their full selves at work and share when they're worried about an elderly parent that they're caring for or they're worried about their own experience around COVID, for example? So I live with a couple of chronic health conditions, which has meant that the pandemic has been a pretty scary time for me. And I know that's the case for a number of other people with disabilities as well. And that's meant managing that process in a slightly different way. So when I caught COVID, I had three months of long COVID afterwards, which was really challenging. And I was lucky enough to be supported by my clients during that time, which was really helpful, but that's not the case for everyone. There's some really interesting research out of the University of Queensland a few years ago by a practitioner known as Dr. Charmaine Hartel. And she did some really fascinating research on people with invisible stigmatised identities. So that's essentially someone with an identity that is largely stigmatised in society, but can mask it or hide it or edit it if they wish to, which means that people in the workplace might not necessarily know they have that identity. So this research found that for people who are hiding their identity or fearful about coming out, they could experience a 30% reduction in their productivity not because of the diverse identity, but because of the emotional and psychological weight of hiding their identity. But when the workplace was safe enough for them to come out or at least not have to worry about being found out, that reduction in productivity didn't exist. And on the flip side, when we embrace diversity and create psychological safety, as I keep referencing it, it helps everyone. So I want to share a couple of stories to illustrate this. One of the organisations I was working in last year, we spent a year creating an employment program for neurodivergent people. So neurodivergence includes autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, to name a few. But this particular employment program was focused on autistic people. So the program was heavily supported, particularly for leadership teams who had someone join their team who was autistic and for the team members around them. So what we found was really fascinating during this particular period where we brought on a number of autistic people into the organisation. Some of the teams found that the people that had joined their teams didn't feel the need to mask about who they were. So they were really authentic. They showed up and talked about what was happening in their day. They just didn't have this kind of, I know a lot of us really put on a mask or, you know, this corporate suit when we go to work. And these participants didn't necessarily do that, or some of them didn't anyway. And what leaders found was that when the autistic person dropped their mask and just showed up as an authentic, real, open person, the leaders were able to do the same and everyone around them was able to do the same. And what they acknowledged was this eased the cognitive load on everyone in the team and enabled them to just be real in themselves. And it was just a beautiful experience to watch. And if I can share one more, I supported a client with a gender transition support program of a junior staff member who was transitioning gender. So they were assigned female at birth and they were transitioning to being a man. And this particular program involved delivering inclusion training and working with the executive and leadership team to role model effective behaviours and working with HR and IT to understand and implement policy changes. As a result of these conversations, a member of their executive team, after almost a decade of working at this company, came out as gay, even though he had a partner for a number of years and he had not once shared this with his team. So he can now openly discuss the love of his life just like anyone else can on that team who is in a heterosexual relationship. So we can see how implementing psychological safety and making these shifts for people with diverse identities supports everyone and creates a safer environment for all people. Wow, that story just makes me want to cry. Like tears of happiness. It happens so often and... It is a journey, isn't it? So we were talking about psychological safety a lot and we know that we need 
that sort of environment in order for employees to open up, to thrive and to be comfortable in their own skin, so to speak. But what other practical ways would you recommend organisations take on to enable this inclusion, particularly around identity? Look, it really depends on what the particular identity shift is. But if we look at kind of some of those foundational building blocks of diversity and inclusion, it's first and foremost looking at policy, which can be a little bit dry. It's the less sexy side of diversity and inclusion. But it's really important to look at are the policies there to support employees and are they explicit and clear? So, for example, does your bullying and harassment policy specifically and clearly articulate the inclusion of a range of diverse identities to protect them from bullying and harassment. And you might also be an organisation that has a gender transitioning policy or process that articulates some of the supports that are available for people who are transitioning gender. So those are some of the policy elements. But from a leadership perspective, and this is an area that I love working in, the intersection of kind of leadership development, coaching and diversity and inclusion, because where the rubber really hits the road with DNI is how people bring it to life every single day. Day. So I'm really passionate about helping people translate that inclusive intention into inclusive action. And that's about those everyday behaviours and how leaders show up. It's also supporting leaders to understand that they don't need to have all the answers. And in fact, sometimes it's worth accepting that you won't have all the answers, but it's actually about showing up with humility and curiosity and openness to learn and understand and trusting that someone who's perhaps going through an identity shift or has a diverse identity, for example, they live this every day. They don't need for you to tell them what to do. They just need the safety to be able to do it at work. So sometimes inclusive leadership is about asking the right questions such as, hey, what do you need from me? Or I might not get this right every time, but I'd really love to learn and I'd love to understand. So I apologise in advance if I mess up some of the language, but I want to create a really safe space for you where you feel empowered to be your best self and bring that to work. So I'd love to understand. So that leadership element is really important as well, particularly when it comes to measuring that. So diversity and inclusion measurements, for example, shouldn't sit in isolation. They shouldn't be something that sits adjunct to the business. It should be part of the business strategy, particularly in relation to how those inclusive behaviours show up in leadership day to day. So how is that measured alongside other KPIs that are equally as important to the business? And it's okay to be uncertain about what that looks like. If anyone's unsure about that, you can always come to me and have a chat so I can help you turn that theoretical into practical and understanding the really key, practical, measurable, specific behaviours that come with leading inclusively and setting psychological safety. So there's actually a series of really practical behaviours that kind of come with that that can be easy to measure, but they also require the right environment and they require organisations to dedicate resources to be able to enable that. It's really difficult to create an inclusive environment when people are doing it on the side of their desks, on the side of their day jobs. So it's important to not only look at those foundational elements around policy and procedure, but when it comes to implementing it day to day and engaging leadership, for example, that takes resources and a commitment to be able to do that well. So when you say resources, that's people, what else would you say as well? 
So it's depending on the business size and depending on their approach and what they're looking to focus on, it's resources from a people perspective, but it's also resources from a financial perspective. So even if you're simply celebrating days of significance, I mean, it shouldn't be seen as simple, but it's one of the foundational actions that takes funding to be able to put on an event. And if you're bringing in speakers, particularly speakers who have a diverse lived experience, those speakers should be paid for their time. And that's not a practice that's always necessarily done, but it should be. But also from a resource perspective, when you think about the expectation on leaders within businesses, whether that be middle management all the way up to executive, there is such a weight on those leaders in terms of what they're expected to produce. So adding on another task or responsibility around inclusion can bring about some resentment if the space isn't created for them to be able to not only learn those new skills, but implement them, make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. So that takes time and to be able to create that space within a leader's workload, but also provide the funding and resources is really important. That's a great point. Thank you. So you mentioned earlier about the name Sarah and people's reaction to that name versus your new name. Yes. So thank you for reminding me. The reason that I mentioned that is for some people who change their name, I mean, there are so many different reasons as we've covered, right, as to why people change their name. But for some people who change their name and move towards an identity that fits well for them, for some people, the identity that they're leaving behind, it not only doesn't fit well, but it's actively uncomfortable to think about or be reminded of. So now this is not always the case for all trans and gender diverse people, and I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, but for many people who are trans and gender diverse, and for anyone who's not familiar with what that means, that someone identifies with a gender that is different to the sex that they're assigned at birth. That might be a binary gender, such as a trans woman or a trans man, who might just be referred to as a woman or a man, or it might be a non-binary gender, such as non-binary or gender diverse or gender queer. So for people who go through a process of embracing their true gender identity, that might mean a different name, different pronouns, different way of expressing their gender. And for people who embrace a new name as a trans person, using their old name is something that's referred to as dead naming. And that can be a really deeply uncomfortable process for someone who is trans. Now, dead naming can happen by accident or it can happen intentionally. And look, I have a best friend. She's really trying so hard to use my new name. And there's been a few times where she's sort of tripped up and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm really, really trying. And for me, it's okay because it doesn't bring about this sense of deep discomfort when I hear the name Sarah. But for some people who've left behind a gender that they never felt was theirs, hearing that name can be a deeply uncomfortable process. So if you are trying to adjust to someone who's changed their name and that person is a trans person, if you can try as hard as possible to use their new name, but if you make a mistake, what I would recommend that you do is correct yourself as soon as you've noticed and move on. The more that you make a big deal about it or the more that you overly apologise, the more that that puts a burden onto the person to make you feel better when they're already feeling a degree of discomfort around it. So if you're someone who is adjusting to a change that a friend or a colleague has made and you're feeling like it's a bit of an inconvenience to learn a new name, I guarantee you that the degree of inconvenience and discomfort experienced by the person going through that change is far beyond what you could ever imagine. So it might be a slight inconvenience for you to shift and use a new name, but for them it is 
imminently powerful. And for the LGBTQ community in particular, it can drastically decrease experiences of mental illness and suicidal ideation just by using the right pronouns and the right name can have such a drastic impact on trans and gender diverse people, particularly those who are younger. Wow. Thank you so much for explaining that because while I was listening, I was self-reflecting and thinking about my own identity, my own name and the privilege that I have. And I don't know, I've never had to think about people slipping up. Like, sure, I get annoyed when people say Christine instead of Kathy. But if I was to compare that to say someone who has gone through a transition, like for my kind of first world problems, it's just this tiny little thing. So thank you so much for putting it into perspective. That's really important. I'm glad you raised that. It's a really good example. So when we talk about privilege, I think a lot of people get a little bit turned off by that word or they get defensive. But when we talk about privilege, it just means some sort of social advantage that we have and we have almost never asked for it or sorted out. It's just been given to us. So that might be due to gender or it might be due to cultural diversity or lack of or being an able-bodied person. But you haven't chosen it. It just means that you have it. So everyone has different degrees of privilege and different degrees of oppression depending on their identity. But your example is a great one. So something that you've never had to consider someone mispronouncing your name, you didn't choose that, but you have it and that's nice to have. So for some people, they don't have that privilege and it means that it's a little bit more difficult for them. This is where ally behaviour really comes in because as an ally, if you don't have that experience of lesser privilege, then you've got some privilege to share, if that makes sense. And that's not something to be guilty about. It's just something that exists. I'm really glad that you acknowledged that and considered what that means from your own perspective, Kathy, as well. Thank you. <laughs> so the final question, which is how we finish every episode of High Potential with Indeed is, what will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? Essentially, it involves acknowledging what it takes to create an inclusive workplace. And the second part is actually committing to that hard road. Diversity and inclusion isn't just about creating a DNI statement. And in fact, if that's all that's done and that's done in isolation, that can actually be more damaging if the work isn't being done behind the scenes. So acknowledging that to create an inclusive environment, it takes a lot of time and potentially a lot of discomfort as well and challenging conversations. For organisations to be able to acknowledge that, and adequately provide the resources and the executive and leadership support, but also the cultural humility to be able to admit when they've made a mistake. If I can share an example of that, Ida Hobbit Day last year, and for those who don't know what that is, that's International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, Biphobia and Intersexism. So whilst it is somewhat of a day of a celebration, it's also about acknowledging the ongoing challenges that the LGBTQ community faces. I was working with an organisation at the time who put out a post on social media that was unfortunately not particularly well received by the LGBTQ community and for good reason. Now, it was a simple mistake. It was not intended to be offensive in any way. And so what we did was we worked with a marketing and communications team to look at how we would respond to this. So how do we see this as 
an expression of trust that the community has in us as an organisation to call us out. Because if you're getting silence, that means that you've already lost people and you've lost trust. So people are engaged and they're upset. So what we did was we released a statement acknowledging that that was not our intention and acknowledging that it had negative impact and here's what we intend to do better in the future. And it was received really well. So if you're called out for something and you make a mistake, that's okay. It's actually all about how you own that and how you commit to do better in the future. I love that. It's about taking accountability. Thank you so much for joining High Potential today, Danica. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Higher Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.